Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. I'm Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're excited to have Laura Owens, who is the nurse educator for the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Emergency and Trauma Centre. Welcome, Laura. Uh, hello. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to actually look at five things we need to know or understand about chest pain. Before we jump into that, we're always curious to get to know our guests. So, Laura, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the nurse educator in emergency? Nursing for me and the Royal has always been a bit of a family affair. My nan was a nurse in the 1950s. My mum then trained at the Royal in the 1980s and then I joined the team in the noughties. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and so I always, I always knew I wanted to go into healthcare. I mean, I made a deviation. I started as a paramedic and so that's a kind of my origin story as I went straight to uni, became a paramedic, did that for a couple of years and then one day I came in here with a patient into the Royal in ED and I said to one of the guys, I have a registration, I have a nursing registration, I think I should probably use it. They said, no worries, I'll introduce you to the NUM and a week later I had an interview and like six weeks later I started as a new graduate in ED here at the Royal. Awesome. So you're a royal nursing baby. Oh, and I was born here as well. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so the actual royal baby. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I was born here and I'll probably die here. That's, <laughs> you know. Hopefully you die happy. <laughs> yeah, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. What a great generational story. Do you, do you think you're inspired by your grandma and your mum? Yeah, my mum still works here. She, um, sometimes we have coffee dates. I obviously work on the ground floor and she's off on the ninth floor and we meet somewhere in between and grab a coffee. Yeah. But I think, I think, uh, she always conveyed feeling proud of what she did. And that always made me feel, you know, I initially thought I wasn't going to be a nurse, but here I am. (laughs) So, um, we're going to talk about, you know, these five things we need to understand about chest pain. What did you have as your number one? When you think about chest pain in the ED, we say you treat for the worst and you hope for the best. And so you always have to consider, you know, yes, this could be something very simple, but it could also be something very serious. And so what you need to do is, rather than making an assumption, is, is you know, do a bit of assessment and try and figure out what that is. We're starting with the presenting problem of chest pain. And just like it is now with sepsis, where sepsis kills everyone except people that don't have sepsis, chest pain was very much like... Uh, that was that was kind of how it was ingrained into us in the same way of everything is uh, acute coronary syndrome or an MI in chest pain except for the stuff that's not. So when we're looking at talking about making assumptions, uh, some of the points that, that um, we kind of talked about before were that we need to know the proportions of the or the population prevalence of cardiac chest pain. So we kind of knowing where we're sifting and sorting. P- people into so from the ed setting 
what sort of proportion of all of your chest pain presentations, which are many, uh, end up being acute coronary syndrome? Um, so I did a bit of a dive for some uh, and found some older statistics, and I do have the updated ones. I just have to pull them up. But I think the statistics showed, and although it might change a little bit with COVID, is that about a third of the patients that present to ED with chest pain had a cause that was either acute coronary syndrome or related to their heart. And I mean, interestingly, that then leaves two thirds of that population, which is quite large. Chest pain is one of our most common presentations in the ED. Two thirds are, are other sources of chest pain, which are, it's a huge list. Yeah. I even, I tried um, even in preparing for this Googling how many <laughs> differentials of chest pain there are. It was like, yeah. I can write them all down and tell them up. I mean, there's lots, it could be reflux, it could be muscular, like maybe they've gone to the gym, is it a strain? Have they got inflammation around, you know, their chest from, um, because they've got pneumonia? It's, the list is very far reaching. And I suppose that's probably one of the most complicating things about chest pain is you really do need to look into it a bit further and, and decide, you know, is there an immediate life threat? And then work from there. Yeah. Which I think plays off that idea of if we know what the likely prevalence of this is, we have the suspicion about the really serious stuff and then we're doing our assessment and any investigations to actually move the needle on the probability of that being the diagnosis that something ends up with. And we don't talk about that a lot um, in nursing, I don't think that well in terms of understanding how the data we gather shifts the probability towards or away from a diagnosis, not rules it in or rules it out 100%. And I suppose don't misunderstand me when I talk about diagnosis. I know as nurses that's not necessarily what we do, but I think it's good to understand why you do things, understand what things look like so that you can try and for yourself risk stratify where do I need to go from here and, and what happens now, you know, that sort of yeah. idea. So that kind of takes us nicely to your second thing that we need to think about, which is the assessment of someone with chest pain. Um, so what sort of, where do you start with your assessment knowing that this could be something really life-threatening? So I think like everything, um, well, the Jackson 5 had it right, you start with ABC, right? You, yeah. you do what will, in ED we would call it your primary assessment and that's because it happens first and that's your that doctor's A, B, C, D, E that's ingrained to us. And that's, that's once again, that's to, to decide, uh, there, is there anything here that's immediately life-threatening that I need to do something about? As part of that, you're deciding, you know, are, is there airway pain? Look at their breathing. Is it, is it adequate? Identifying that there's a problem and fixing it. You go on to see, you have a feel of their pulse. Is it strong? Is it weak? Are they cold? Are they sweaty? Obviously, a cold, sweaty person sitting in front of you who looks very grey, that's like a little red flag. That makes me nervous. Absolutely. So then we've done that kind of assess for immediate life threats, our primary survey approach, um, and we're then starting to move into a deeper sort of secondary assessment. What, are we, what sort of things are we trying to look for in that? Have you got a structure? <laughs> I think there's many different ways to tackle this and all of them are valid and none of them are wrong. I think when you're used to, I suppose, we like, well, right, we like mnemonics in nursing. Yeah. yeah. And so if you continue that A, B, C, D, E, um, I was always taught then you can continue all the way down to J, which is, you know, 
after your airway breathing, circulation, disability and exposure, you can then think you're going to do a full set of vital signs, you're going to give some comfort measures, um, you're going to do some sort of history, a head to toe or some sort of assessment, you're going to intervene and then you're going to jot it down. That's F, G, H, I and J. <laughs> That's new to me, I have to say. <laughs> That's one way of doing it, yeah. Is that an emergency nursing thing or you think most of our listeners will be familiar with that? No, I think, I think that's probably emergency-centred. Yeah. But I think it's nice because we, you know, it covers all of those things that we, like you get caught up in your assessment's important and that's all part of it, but it reminds you that, you know, part of that is giving a bit of comfort, doing something to help your patient and then documenting it because at the end of the day if you don't document something it didn't happen absolutely and it, and it also helps square away the the part that the nur- nursing assessment is playing in the bigger picture diagnosis of, of chest pain because we shouldn't have to keep the next person that comes in the the junior doctor that comes in and does the whole thing again and then the registrar that comes in and does the whole thing again I, ideally we're communicating this through documentation and also raising the um, abnormal aspects of our assessment findings so that we can advance the process and get to the, tr- the treatment quicker, hey? Yeah, and this is certainly not an assessment that takes half an hour. They're, you know, pointed, sharp questions so that when you do inevitably have to call for some help, and we know that that's going to come, um, that you have some really good information for them, you can structure it and you can demonstrate, well, that you're concerned yeah. And that's like a real key skill in nursing, I think, is being able to tell someone when you're worried. We're starting quite broad at umbrella concepts. So to sort of get down a little lower and a bit more kind of applicable, let's paint a picture off our, off our assessment of a patient that's sitting on in the ward, for example. They've called the buzzer. You're the nurse that's walking in. They've said, oh, my, I've got really bad chest pain. You're looking at them from the end of the bed. You're seeing someone who looks pale. You can see the sweat on their on their face and their arms. They they look uncomfortable. They're kind of sitting forward, hand on their chest. We're going through. We're we're looking at our immediate life threats. At, we're working through our ABC. I'll give us a little quick update and then we'll launch into your sort of next points on this. But so we've got A's patent. They're they're breathing. They're they're talking to us. That's a good start. Yeah. B, they're breathing, it's a bit laboured, but nothing that we're going to stop at and intervene immediately necessarily. Perfect. C, they're pale, they look clammy. We're going to have a feel of their pulse at that point because the stuff's starting to point towards C maybe being a problem. D, they've got pain. That That's an, that's an issue under our disability arm. E, we can sort of see because they typically have that lovely off-the-shoulder um, gown hanging off like most people. People in the woods look, down, yep. um, but but we would that we would consider um, exposing further to assess to have a listen to the lungs and stuff, and then we kind of moving into our give. We're up to that kind of give comfort measures, but I think we've been like we've sort of hit a point where we we're zoning in through that assessment at C and D are pointing our our kind of radars going off around this feels a little bit like it could be an ACS or a primary cardiac problem or a circulatory problem at least at that point. Mm-hmm. point. So what do we? how do we then start to shift the D assessment a bit more around our pain assessment um, approach in that setting? What are, you, what are you going to be working through? You are then going to break that down and once again, it's another mnemonic, 
I was always taught to assess pain using the mnemonic OPQRST, which, I mean, it sounds like a lot of letters, doesn't it? But it's, it, it's just a way of really honing in on exactly what the patient is experiencing because um, you can kind of then, well, obviously we know there's a lot of atypical presentations of chest pain and we shouldn't get too caught up on what certain types of chest pain look like, but there's certainly you can point you in different directions. Um, and so that's O stands for onset. So whether that's, you know, what were you doing when the pain started? If you were sitting in bed watching TV and it wasn't something overly exciting, then you, you shouldn't get chest pain. You know, if you're running a marathon, then perhaps it's a bit different. And so that kind of informs you a bit about, you know, uh, whether or not you might think that it's someone's heart as opposed to something else. P stands for um, provocation and palliation. So that's what makes it better or what makes it worse, to put it super simply. And so that's, you know, um, you know, if you take a big deep breath in for me, does that make the pain worse? Because if it does, once again, it doesn't necessarily rule out ACS, but you might think, is this related to lungs? You know, they're moving their chest, moving those muscles. If that's changing the pain, maybe it's that. Or if, if you rest or if you sit in a certain position, does it feel better? And it's just all about, like, getting a bit of an understanding of that. Q stands for quality. And this is a difficult question. And that's, what does the pain feel like? And often people will say to you, I don't know, it's just pain. And you're like, okay, well, is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it heavy? Does it feel like, you know, does it feel like you can't get a big deep breath in? Heaviness, for example, points to sort of quintessential acute coronary syndrome. Um, and so it's just another little red flag in your head that you think, okay, well, maybe that's not good. And then R is radiation. So does the pain leave your chest and go anywhere else? Does it go down your arms? Does it go into your neck and into your jaw? Um, and that's common. Um, I know when chest pain radiates down your left arm, for example, the chance of it being acute coronary syndrome is significantly higher but also, like in my experience, I've seen lots of people who truly complain of mostly pain in their neck or pain, you know, between their shoulder blades and their back and all of that kind of stems from their chest. And then S is severity and that's asking for a good pain score. If zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain you ever, <laughs> you could ever imagine. I always tell my patients that a 10 is childbirth with two broken legs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then they're like, oh, I might reconsider. I don't know that it's a 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then T is time. So when did it start? How long have you had it for? You know, how long has it been going for now? Yeah. Does that kind of cover? That is, yeah, it's perfect. That is wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. We're at the point where we've got our sort of sneaky suspicions that there's something going on with the heart potentially in this particular patient. We're going to do a 12-lead ECG, aren't we? Boy, are we, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like in, in emergency we have a benchmark and that's that oh, chest pain receives what we call a category two and that means that you get seen within 10 minutes and that's because they should have an ECG within 10 minutes and that should be shown as soon as possible to someone who has a skill in reading ECGs. And I, I think I'm not going to sit here today and say you need to know how to read a 12-lead ECG. That's not, you know, in some places it's a super useful skill. In other places you may not use it as much and when you don't use it it's really difficult to maintain. But I think that it's important to, you know, as to make sure you get the best tracing you can possibly get um, and that's making sure that your leads are all in the correct places, that they're not all in funny positions and that's why it's good to expose your patient's chest to do a 12-lead ECG. 
I often tell my um, staff to write on the top of the ECG, like what was what symptoms was the patient experiencing at this time? Because if that changed or that went away, they would want to do another ECG and then look at the two of them together and compare. Um, I think also, sort of importantly, you know, it you may not be able to interpret it down to the nitty gritty, but I think it's a really good skill to just be able to look at an ECG and just think that looks abnormal. Mm. <laughs> like you don't need to name it. You just look at it and think need to know that's, that's not right. We're in that's trouble not here. Normal. Yeah. We'll expand on ECG practice and lead placement and those sorts of things in another episode, but we will share some resources attached to the to this episode because that's a whole other rabbit hole to oh, go down. Yes. But essential, and I think the key points you made there is we're, we're starting to look at any test or investigation that we're doing that's going to contribute to diagnosis or ongoing monitoring of a patient needs to be three things. It needs to be relevant. And we've determined that ECG is relevant in this situation because of our chest pain assessment now, other assessments. So it's a relevant test or investigation for this patient. It needs to be reproducible. So lead placement is not just to get the accuracy but and the diagnostic quality, but it's to get two, three, four, five different people doing it the same way so that those millimetres of change aren't just down to two or three different people doing different lead placements. And then the other one is the reliability, which we're talking about, again, from quality lead placement, we get a reliable ECG that a millimetre or two of difference can be interpreted as having diagnostic quality impact. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Not being a nurse, your third point here is identify red flags within the chest pain assessment. How, how is it all not red flags? Like how do you sift through that and think this is like a really big red flag, this is a little red flag? I mean, in this patient it is a lot of red flags. There's a, a lot of different things that might cause a little red flag for you. I think firstly it's if you do a full set of vital signs and you add up your QAD score or whatever, you know, whatever form you use and they're sitting in emergency criteria, review criteria, that's a red flag. That's something physiologically very wrong. I, I would even know that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's made, it's made, so it's very easy to follow. <laughs> red flags are also, you know, the presence of um, other symptoms. So like, for example, in my practice, anecdotally, the most common symptom I've seen associated with people having a heart attack or a myocardial infarction is nausea probably the most common one, yeah. along with, you know, pain uh, amongst other things. But some might feel breathless. Breathlessness is, is still something that should sit in the back of your head and you think that's not normal. Dizziness probably should flag for you that there's something maybe not right with this person's heart. And the other things are, are risks, risk factors. And when we talk about risk factors, I don't want you to think, oh, well, this person doesn't have any risk factors, so it's definitely not a heart attack because that's because you can be a thin, fit person and still have a heart you attack, can't you? absolutely can be a thin, fit person and have a heart attack. Um, but that's things like, you know, asking about family history. If they've had someone very close to them who they're related to who has had a significant cardiac event at a similar age, that's a red flag. You know, if they are currently on a cardiac ward because <laughs> that's a red flag, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's – that it's adding context to your assessment and that's going to depend on where you work and you'll get an idea of, you know, the more common causes, I suppose, related to where you work, if, you know. But it's, yeah, it's about thinking about 
things that make you more or less suspicious about a heart attack. So for those of you people at home obviously can't see you, you look relatively young. You sound like an expert. How long does it take you, like, till you felt confident um, to, to speak to this, to, you know, know when to call for help and when this is actually someone's just eaten too much and they've got pressure on their chest? What's difficult when you're new is that you... I always used to feel like I was putting someone out or bothering someone if I escalated something that wasn't necessarily within the realm of emergency. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not unconscious, you know, should I be able to do something about it? And the answer is, as I've gotten more senior in my job, I've realised that people are not going to get upset with you for escalating something, that nursing concern is, is flagged as part of our emergency criteria is something that's a really relevant thing. And so I think it's just taken a bit of just time and practice and seeing a few different things and talking to a lot of different experts and it gets easier the longer you kind of uh, work and the more you see. Yeah, and the more you reflect on the, those cases afterwards and, and get feedback and and stay around and hear what the next steps are, I 100%, think. 100%, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, listen to other people assessing them. Like, what did, you know, how'd you go? Did you pick up most of it? Like, yeah, yeah you know, even as simple as that. Because yeah. we can have 10 years of the same one year repeated without reflection and still be like as good as we were at one year in. Or we can yeah. have 10 years of growth reflection and get boss level at assessing this stuff. So that I, th- I think that is a really good segue into your fourth point, which is getting help, get help. and kind of from... Who, where, what does help look like? And I'd imagine, based on what you just said, it's different at different stages of your career as to what help looks like and feels like. Absolutely. So I think I think first and foremost, you need the help of your colleagues. If you're working, you know, on a ward and and your patient says, oh, I, I'm, I've gotten some chest pain and I'm feeling really, really unwell, hit that staff assist, get your nursing team leader, get someone to bring some equipment to you so that you're not leaving that person on their own, you know. Um, do use the tools that are provided to you to help you make these decisions. And so I kind of alluded to, we use QADs obviously here at, at the Royal Brisbane, but there's lots of, I suppose, throughout Queensland Health that should be, but there's a few different iterations of that idea of, between the flag sort of... Yeah. Um, yeah, there's sco- scoring based scoring systems, escalation yeah. of so charts. Yeah. follow the guide that's available to you if you're unsure. It's, it's tried and tested and, you know, no one, no one will be upset with you <laughs> for calling, you know, for help. And if that's the case, if it requires that emergency response, then you'll, whatever your local policy is, you'll call them, let them know where you are, let them know what's going on. And otherwise it might just be, you know, okay, well, my QADS is okay and the, as in my patient is vitally stable and they look unwell, I could call simply just for a review, you know, within 30 minutes. And that's knowing that if you couldn't get that in a way in quick enough or if something happened to your patient and they deteriorated, you can change that at any point. And go back to hitting the button yes, and asking for help. Absolutely. Once yeah. you've Once you've escalated one way... If that's no longer appropriate, escalate a different way. That's fine. No one, no one will be upset by that. Yeah, I think that's great. So while you've called for help and you're waiting for that review, what are some things we can sort of do that we're, so we're not just going, oh, cool, I'll just kind of hang around and 
Sort of twiddle my thumbs. Yeah, yeah. Are you okay, sir? I'm going to go for my lunch break. Yeah. You know? yeah. So this is your number. <laughs> this is your number five point, right? What is what is the intervention? So first and foremost, it's for me reassurance. That sounds like such a silly thing, but your your heart and let's be honest, your heart is your powerhouse. It's a muscle, and when it's working hard because you're either you know physically unwell or you're stressed about being on a podcast, your oxygen <laughs> your, your oxygen demand goes up and that's not what we want. So you, you want to talk to your patient, you want to let them know, hey, yeah, I see you've got chest pain, you're in great hands, I've called for someone to come and review you, you know, and then get them into a position where they're comfortable. So don't, you know, force them to lie down if it's uncomfortable, get them somewhere comfy and pop them back into bed or whatever you need to do. Um, and then you can sort of... Add to that, you know, you can have a look at adding more, I suppose, medical interventions for want of a better word, pharmacological interventions, whatever you can add. And so that might mean you might, um, you get someone to bring their chart to you, you can check for orders, for example, you know, they, they might already have some pain relief that's charted, give them some pain relief. It doesn't, if there's something physiologically wrong, giving pain relief is not going to mask it you know, there will still be something going on. So don't feel worried about providing something because once again, that rest, that reassurance, that assistance with pain, and we know that in chest pain we tend to aim for pain-free, it's it's going to help. It really is. Yeah, it's a supply and demand <laughs> issue, isn't yeah, it? The, it blood, is. the blood supply is not there to meet the demand So, and we can't necessarily easily change the blood supply thing without... Well, we'll go to GTN in a sec, <laughs> yeah. but but we can reduce the demand through that rest reassurance and analgesia a bit. And it, it often gets overlooked because we're stressed and they're stressed, and you know you want to intervene with something else. But um, like like everything, rest and reassurance actually goes a long way. Yeah. So the other thing that kind of comes out of this is the importance of knowing that we have standing orders for certain emergency medications. That'll differ from facility to facility. But for the example, the obvious example here is GTN for chest pain and the standing order for that in this situation. GTN um, is, well, comes in a few different forms, but essentially it's, it's a medication that helps uh, dilate your blood vessels and in the most simple way possible it uh Reduces workload on your heart. Yeah, and can vasodilate the coronary arteries enough to get a bit more blood flow past a blockage if there is one. Thank you. But the general takeaway of that is being aware if your organisation has a chest pain management protocol that involves standing orders for these sort of medications and knowing that um, or knowing where to access that when you need it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's something I suppose it's worth thinking about early on because this is not an uncommon complaint. This is not an uncommon thing to have encountered. Um, Other therapy at at that stage? So things like oxygen, which I mean, 10 years ago, we used to put it on everyone, right? It's def, that's definitely not the case anymore. I suppose um, oxygen, you are just aiming to target that SpO2 sitting above 94%. Um, and that's because we know now that, that oxygen should be considered like any other medication and that's, that you can you 
should only have it when you need it and you definitely don't want too much <laughs> too much of it yeah, yeah. And uh, then I guess it becomes the next steps are preparing for what you know is going to be done by the medical officer when they do get there and trying, I guess, seeing if we can minimise the time frame that that's going to take when they arrive, given we're waiting potentially 20 minutes, they get there. How can we shrink the time to do the things that we know they're going to do anyway? Yeah, so it, it might be that they decide to do a few things and all with the view to rule out specific causes of chest pain. And so I suppose it would be worth, it depends on on where you're working and how it, you know, what sort of access to orders you have. But you might decide to get some uh, equipment to draw blood close, you know, because there's a few different markers and things that you can test for that give you an idea of whether this is, for example, uh, an MI, a myocardial infarction, or is it a, a pulmonary embolism? You know, there there are different types of bloods that you can do to, to check those markers to help cement, I suppose, what you think is going on. And so the big one I'm talking about there is, is specifically a troponin. Essentially, it's an enzyme that when present, when you can see it in your blood, it indicates that there's likely to be some sort of damage to your myocardium, which is the muscle of your heart. Um, knowing that it can also be high for many other reasons. But, you know, it's one marker that we can look at and we often look at it serially, so one after the other, a couple hours apart, to see which way it's trending and that tells you a lot about what's going on. Um, I suppose the other is potentially a um, D-dimer, which can be used specifically to rule out pulmonary embolism, which would be sort of if I think about the big ticket things that cause chest pain, it would be the three would be acute myocardial infarction, it would be um, pulmonary embolism and it would be probably a dissection, which you can't test for on a blood test, but that's okay. And at that D-dimer helps to rule out pulmonary embolism, um, but there are lots, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's definitely a rule out as opposed to a rule in. And there's all these different pathways and tools that help you figure out whether you need to do that. Yeah. And we won't get into the weeds <laughs> of that on no. this podcast. Is the other part of the intervention, if I'm the nurse, getting ready to have a concise handover? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, I'm sure we've all been in a situation, it's hard to listen to a handover that's not structured. You kind of want to pull the important information out of what someone has to say. So, yeah, use the structure and, and think about your handover prior to having to do it if you can. And that's using, I use personally ISBA or SBA, but there are multiple different ways that you can... Yeah. Structure, yeah. But uh, yeah, and it is bar. It's worth just touching on that because the the ingredients are the same. Just the recipe might be a little bit different on all the different sorts. So introduction, situation, background, assessment, and recommendations. And don't forget the recommendations part. Perfect. Laura, that's been so great. So just double-checking that I've got your five things to recommend for chest pain. Number one is be mindful assumptions. Like, yes, be on alert, I guess, that this could be a cardiac event, but it also could be other things. So check for that. Number two is to, you know, do a comprehensive assessment. And you gave us a number of mnemonics around that one. Yeah, look at your patient and use the tools available to you. Perfect. Number three was identifying red flags uh, with the chest assessment. Yep. So decide what you're worried about and, and or what you're not worried about. Yep. Number four, getting help, who from and how quickly. Yeah, that's important. 
So either decide if you need to call for a medical emergency team or if you need a review from a medical officer. Yep. And I guess, you know, the big one is don't be afraid to hit the button and ask for something urgent. 100%. I would much prefer to be called to to something minor than to end up walking in on something major that no one told me about. Much, much, much prefer that. Okay. And last is five is like, what are your interventions that you can do immediately um, and, and while you're waiting for further assistance? Yeah. And that was just to summarise, um, rest and reassurance, check to see if you can give some medication based on your local policy and what they've got written up, um, provide some oxygen if they need it, um, and consider setting up for some, some sort of blood collection. And then I suppose to add to that, which we didn't cover, is think about they may end up needing to go for a chest X-ray and that's just to rule out other sorts of issues with lungs, pneumonia, rib fractures, pneumothoraxes, all sorts of other things. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm sure that's going to be very helpful for our listeners. Thanks again, Laura. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Cheers. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.